Hi, friends. We've been getting some great feedback from you all on the podcast and really appreciate it. In order to keep it going and expand the conversations, we need some help from you guys. If you could do one of these things, it would go a long way. Rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, share with friends, or suggest a corporate sponsor. Thanks in advance. Now let's get back out there. I mean, Occupy was pretty, pretty formative. Um, Occupy, I will just say one piece about Occupy. For me personally, it was the first time in my life where I started to understand what my role was going to be, which is as a person who could bridge between certain kinds of worlds. So I think everyone has different worlds that they inhabit, of course. Everyone's code switching, switching languages, different realities that they inhabit. But I started to notice how I, unlike many people that I knew, could be perfectly happy at 2 a.m. in Zuccotti Park having a political conversation with someone uh, by a tent and at the Bowery Hotel the next day having a cocktail with some sort of more fancy person, that I could live in both of those worlds. And one of those worlds has a lot more resources than the other. Mm -hmm. So I started to think of myself as someone who could communicate with the world of resources about this world of movement and try to get the resources into the movement, which really set me up to come into this job Mm -hmm. um, because I can translate for resource types, why movement work strategically makes sense or is you know good for the world. Because there's a lot of people in movement who didn't grow up around resources or aren't comfortable around it or don't have access to it and so can't really speak that language. And people who have resources who would like to help the world but have no idea where to start. They don't know what they're looking at. They don't know what's good. They might be attracted to things where anyone who knows anything is like, oh, why are they doing that? You know, that's the Red Cross of this issue. Like, don't give to the Red Cross. (laughs) You know, give to the local black women farmers who are the ones replanting the trees in Haiti or whatever. Obviously, that's better. Well, how would you know that or how would you know where to find them? Welcome to Wild Talk. Welcome to Wild Talk. Welcome to Wild Talk. Welcome to Wild Talk. Let's head outside. Welcome to the Wild Talk podcast, where we speak with leaders, thinkers, researchers, writers, artists, and organizers in natural settings about their work and what they can teach us about venturing into the wild unknown. I'm Emily Kagan Trenchard. And I'm Jay Erickson. Chloe Coburn is a lawyer, an activist, and an organizer. She currently leads strategy on criminal justice reform for open philanthropy, a research and grant-making foundation that identifies giving opportunities, makes grants, and publishes its findings publicly. Prior to joining Open Philanthropy, Chloe oversaw state policy reform efforts at the ACLU's Campaign to End Mass Incarceration, and before that she worked with the Occupy Wall Street and Occupy Sandy movements, which led her to better appreciate her role as a connector between funders and activists. We spoke to Chloe last summer, when those connected worlds were in overdrive. Prison populations were among those hardest hit by the coronavirus, then in its second wave and weeks of intense protest had followed the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor at the hands of police, sparking new awareness and focus on systemic racism and the need for criminal justice reform. Chloe took a break from her work and family to walk us through the woods near her home in the Catskills. Her dog Logan came along. 
The great outdoors. I know, I'm so glad the kids are getting nature. <laughs> I love nature. Love playing Minecraft out in nature. Nature.com. <laughs> Nature.com. <laughs> Jeff, would you mind keeping an eye make sure Phoenix doesn't tromp up after us? Just like two minutes. Yeah, um, Logan's coming with, but not Phoenix, okay? She's very, she's so slow, it just makes, it, then we keep losing her. Sorry, Phoenix, you're the best. Yeah, I've been looking forward to the walk. Awesome. It's gonna be good, but we can go um, sort of up into the trail. Perfect. Good, uh, legit, crackly nature noises in the background. Exactly. Can you tell us sort of where we are, just orient us in uh, space and geography? Sure. We're in either Saugerties or Woodstock. We're right about on the line between the two towns at the foot of, um, I guess it's Indian Head Mountain, um, but it's part of the Catskills. So we're walking towards, you know, there's, there's private land, but then at a certain point it's all state land and it's probably th many thousands of acres. And the land here is pretty cool because it steps up. There's like a climb a ledge, go flat, climb, climb a ledge, go flat. And you can just make your way up the mountain that way. And I notice that when the land is inclined slightly, like when you're going up the mountain, on the flat, when it's curved it's a little bit down as it is right now, you get the uh, pines. And you'll see when it curves up the other way, we get the deciduous trees. And that continues up. I'm sort of curious why that is. Maybe someone who actually knows about trees at some point will tell me. Um, but the woods switch back and forth between these different stands. And then there's like border wars between the pines and the deciduous trees. Well, the pines, I know the pines like acidic soil more. Ah, sounds like science. There's probably some science involved in that. <laughs> and so we're told, you know, 50 years ago, the land next to the road would have been farms. Um, but you'll see there's not too many old, truly old trees. Right. Um, it's a lot of younger ones. So uh, we also have a bunch of interesting human-made rock piles all over the place. And hard to tell, are they like Native American burial sites? Totally could be. Are they colonial burial sites? Are they something someone built in 1960? I don't know. But um, once we get up here, there's trails cutting across and people just, you know, walk on the trail. And it's, it's not a big deal. I've never, I've never actually passed, I might have once passed someone walking up here. So it's pretty, it's pretty chill. And what's your relationship with this place? Like how long have you been here? You come back here every day or? Huh. Oh, up to this land. Yeah. Well, we've had the house for 10 years. We bought it from George Carlin's estate. So when George Carlin died, there was estate taxes and his family decided to sell it. His brother was living here. So we're told that Carlin's ashes are scattered on the land, which is kind of cool. And this uh, area back here is definitely special to me. I, uh, you know, if I can just come up and do a 30 or 40 minute walk, that's pretty refreshing. But I don't necessarily make it up every day. There's a lot going on with two small children and 
parenting in a pandemic, trying to keep work going. And then also a lot of pressing swimming hole appointments these days. That's important, and it's this hot. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> humid. Well, there's a lot of politics of swimming holes these days too, because, um, you know, there's swimming holes that have been used for generations or perhaps time immemorial, but now people around are putting up private property signs. I just encountered this yesterday at a place I'd been to recently that I thought was definitely for the public, but they, there's a menacing sign now next to the path. I don't know, I assume it's like anti-New Yorker, New York Cityism. Um, but it seems especially cruel, like it's a pandemic, it's hot, you know, a lot of options are closed. Let the people swim. Yeah. Um, but this whole like, whose land is it and for whom and for what is of course always an interesting question. So your organization is not open swimming holes. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yes, yes. All of this is just my private life we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. I work with Open Philanthropy and have for the past five years. And what happens at Open Philanthropy? So Open Philanthropy is, a, I guess I'd call it a collaborative project between these uh, donors, Dustin Moskovitz and Carrie Tuna. He was a co-founder of Facebook, um, but they have a lot of money and had been giving for some amount of time in large amounts through a thing called GiveWell, which is a um, entity that sought to answer the question of how, what's the sort of m best, best use of a dollar to improve human well-being. And they gravitated towards projects in very low-income countries, like in Africa, around malaria and uh, malaria nets, you know, getting rid of certain worms that will totally destroy your life, but are cost 10 cents to get rid of, that kind of thing. And so you can help a lot of people that way. But of course, it's a case that that's kind of, you know, uh, you're not addressing any structural problems there. You're dealing with the fact that people right now are at risk of malaria rather than can we transform the public health infrastructure of a country or something like that. So Open Philanthropy was founded to make kind of riskier bets, things that are less sure. It's not like I spend $10, I save a life, but I spend money and might not work a lot of the time, but if it does work, it'll be well worth it. Um, so it's like a high, higher risk, higher return kind of model. Um, and there's various different areas that seem kind of eclectic, but were the results of a pretty uh, rigorous inquiry around what are the cause areas that are important, tractable, and neglected. So it's really going to matter if we make change. We can make change, and there's less money than there should be in it. So when you do that, you, you know, there are things that are clearly important, but that are maybe not tractable or maybe not neglected, like education work, for example. Uh, important, not neglected. There's tons of money going into it and people trying to figure it out. So the cause areas they picked were criminal justice, which is what I work on, uh, risks from artificial intelligence, farm animal welfare, biosecurity, uh, and they have some kind of 
smaller areas like macroeconomic policy, some slivers of immigration and housing that they've done some things in but haven't hired full-time uh, staff around. Uh, so within criminal justice, um, I direct that program with a pretty small team. And my mandate is to cut incarceration uh, as much as possible per dollar, consistent with public safety. And I have a lot of leeway to devise the strategy to achieve that goal. Um, but my assessment has been, while the, the reason things are the way they are and not a different way is the politics of the issue, not technical questions about how could we have less people in prison? It's pretty trivially simple. Like, uh, change these laws, like adjust these policies. It's not actually mysterious, but it is very politically challenging to achieve that goal. So, or has been, but so we've put a lot of money into changing the politics of the issue, including building up constituencies of people who are directly impacted, who are now organized saying we want it to look different. Uh, safety means something different to us. Mm. So this year has been a banner year for open philanthropy issues. First, there was COVID and the bio risk team sprang right. into action and was in position to make a lot of Ooh, great yes, grants. We went right through that spider web, didn't we? Whew. Yeah, I just, I hate that walking through spider webs thing. Oh, usually, a whole song about it. I usually walk with a kind of a branch. Let me pick one up and. You can blaze the trail here. And wave uh, it around, yeah. Definitely. Uh, like there's another one. There we are. Get rid of that one. That one's smart. Uh, I hope there's not a giant spider crawling on me. You'll let me oh, know. No, it's just on your stick, I think. Okay. <laughs> um, so first the pandemic, that was big for them. And then with the Minneapolis, George Floyd uh, uprisings, that's been a big moment for criminal justice, obviously. So how much went, when you were sort of thinking about, you know, how to be impactful, how to change the narrative around this did you have things in place already that could take advantage of this moment? And how much is this moment something totally different from what you kind of uh, thought you'd be up to at this point in time? Hmm. Yes and yes. <laughs> um, to take the second question first, um, I remember when it happened and I was like, of course we're having a Black Lives Matter moment again. Like, of course we are. Because that's where, policing is where state violence hits the ground. That's where people really come into contact with these structures. And then with the tinder, dry tinder of COVID, mm. it really set the stage for this, all of these frustrations and uh, resentments and sense of how are we still in this place? I really need it to be different coming to the fore. Um, the first part of your previous question. Were we ready for it? Yes, I'm really excited about how money that I've recommended be spent over the past five years has set up a number of awesome leaders and groups to act right now in COVID and with the George Floyd uprisings. So take Los Angeles, for example, there's fantastic organizers and people there who had been kind of agitating for years, but not really getting anywhere, not being taken particularly seriously. And we started backing them in 2017 and they built just an incredible uh, apparatus 
think we'll go up this way. Yeah. Um, just build a really great organizing program and uh, put in, just really put in the work around the, oh, that's the path. Okay, never mind. The, uh, the relationships, the policy analysis, the identifying the pressure points of, um, of electeds and so on. So when COVID hit and presents a very dangerous prospect for people who are incarcerated because you can't distance, you right. can't clean. Medical it's, care was uh, uh, lacking to begin with. It's horrible. I mean, they were in position to say you have to release as many people as possible right now. And so in L.A., there's been a 40% reduction in the daily jail population in the past few months, which is huge. Huge. Um, so in various ways, people that we've backed have flexed in this time, which is really satisfying. And of course, with more, we can do more. You know, it's about establishing, the way I look at it is establishing local strongholds. Because it, when I was at the ACLU years ago, we always used to say it's criminal justice, it's about the states, not the federal government. But I think it's better to say it's about the counties. <laughs> because that's where the most important deciders are. Um, the judges, the prosecutors, all of these deciders with a ton of discretion, the police chiefs are at that level. Whereas, you know, the state attorney general will do criminal prosecutions, but it'll be more about things like major fraud or big environmental problem or something. Um, immigration is kind of a mixed bag because it's federal law, but of course, definitely about how the sheriff and other local electeds decide to enforce and what relationship they have to immigrants in their community. Your so impact, right? Yes. Because it sounds like you were positioned with some of these organizations to, to be supporting them ahead of it so they could act in the moment. But, you know, you called that shot. <laughs> what are the sort of ways you think about um, projecting some of that impact or even in this moment now directing the, the energies of the donors that you're working with? Yeah, so there's, an, there's a very simple and clear answer to that question, which is how many people are in, in a jail or a prison cell at any given moment? And are we reducing that number? Could you trace that decline to your funding? But then if you want to, if you're ambitious, like I hope I, I aspire to be, and you don't just want to, you know, have 5,000 less people in jail on a given day in Los Angeles, which is a big deal and something I'm very excited about and proud of. Um, you want to do something more. I keep looking for this turnoff, and I'm not seeing it. We can keep going this way. Um, so part of the impact, then, is about building a field infrastructure, building up strategic leaders, making sure they have the resources to execute on their plans and also train up others like them, uh, backing their campaigns that they may win or lose, but they're sort of gaining capacity, skills, political credibility, and so on. So in this moment, one could say that part of the impact of our giving has been to prepare 
uh, segment of people and organizations to be very effective. Mm. And then they can jump in and do things now that it's not like we're in the plan two years ago or five years ago, but... Hey, you planted the seeds. They're ready, yeah. And that's not some, that takes time to mature. I'd say I watered the seeds. Watered the seeds. <laughs> yeah. I'm not creating the genetic material of you know, people's strategies, but I can spot it and try to nurture it. Can you just, at the, at the, for a top level, for the people who are maybe new to the debate and the conversation, or you know, what, what is the argument for criminal justice reform and why is it so important to reduce incarceration rates, at least in the U.S.? So something I'm realizing lately that has been lacking and I need to develop, so I'm not going to do it well right now, is really capturing what people, most people think about how things currently work. Because I realize so much of the time we've been making an argument for change based on millions of people impacted, families broken up, children much more likely to go to prison if their parents are incarcerated, terrible health impacts on a community-wide level. All of those things, like it's causing harm. But I think that people may hear that, but if they hold their current assumptions, which are incorrect about the goals that the system serves or how it functions, they might be like, ah, oh, I'm really torn. That sounds bad, but I need things to be this way because it's serving these important goals. Like goals of safety, you mean? Well, in particular, I think people have assumptions like um, most people in prison are there for rapes and murders, for example. Mm-hmm. Not true. It's a tiny percentage. Um, they would assume, if they've watched Law & Order, one of the most destructive shows ever on television, that... <laughs> Trials are really quick after the crime and the police are mostly above board. And if there's someone behaving badly, they're dealt with. And the prosecutors are mostly above board. And of course they would never prosecute someone they didn't think actually did it. And so on and so on. There's a sense of like a set of people trying to achieve safety. Because there's one of those Cairns. Cairns. Doing it somewhat efficiently. Yeah, yeah, that's a good example. There's a picture. Of a rock... Circular rock pile. So, and when you get into the work, you start to realize, wow, 95% of people charged with a felony don't see a trial. They plead guilty. And they plead guilty without having access to all the evidence. And even if they technically had the access, if there's reform to the laws requiring that things be turned over to them, do they have legal counsel that can examine it? You could have a public defender, but the public defender has about 29 minutes for you. Isn't going to, like, go through 10 boxes of documents. Not like in a movie that doesn't happen that way? No. You know, of course, public defenders, they're not all fantastic, but many of them are incredibly devoted, hardworking, put in five times the amount of hours, trying to help people as best they can. But when you're carrying a caseload of hundreds of cases, what can you do? Yeah. Um, So if you are given the choice between, well, take a plea to two years, to something maybe you were a little mixed up in, but you didn't do, or maybe you just live in that neighborhood. Maybe, maybe the police, maybe they even don't think you even did it, but they were sure you did something else. And and they're going to get you, they're going to get you on this to punish you for that. But so they might say, take two years now or go to trial and we'll, we'll upcharge you so that you're facing 20 years. So do you take a two-year plea 
or go to trial and risk 20 years. Some people risk trial because they say, I didn't do it, and they lose, and they go in for 20 years. Mm. Even when the DA said, I would be satisfied with two years. So what relationship does that have to any notion of safety? Yeah. What it is, is like very cruelly enforcing a certain efficiency of process, um, running rampant over rights along the way. So there's, there's, there's that whole set of things. There's also, you know, a lot of people in jail and prison aren't there on their first uh, charge. They first started getting, uh, encountering the criminal justice system, maybe when they're teenagers, maybe if you as a teenager steal some lipstick from Walmart, like it's probably not gonna be a problem for you. Uh, someone else steals a lipstick from Walmart or whatever. I'm not saying it's cool to steal, but it's like teenagers do things. Right. And what are the consequences of they'll face? What kind of record is being built? And each time, if you come back into the system again, the penalties are more severe. The chance of escaping from that maze are significantly reduced. It's like a big bureaucratic, very punitive set of practices that could be summed up as, you know, an apparatus of control rather than safety. Um, and the ways that people keep themselves safe, you can see it actually, interestingly, um, there's sort of tensions here really starkly when you look at um, how undocumented communities uh, try to keep themselves safe. So if you're undocumented suffering from domestic violence, you don't really want to call the police because once right. they get involved, you're going to be arrested yourself, all this kind of stuff. So there was a, a group, for example, in New York in the 90s where they, uh, women banded together and dealt with it. If someone was having a problem, they would call on the other women and invoke a sort of community response without involving the police to address the safety issue in a, in a way that would allow everyone to keep living and surviving instead of, hey, police, come pluck out this person. It's a kind of low-flying, it's a helicopter. I'm mean, gonna see that much. Maybe it's going from Albany to the city. That could be. Uh, so, people assume that this very expensive, very punitive and cruel apparatus, well, at least is, you know, keeping them safe. But, you know, what is safety? When, when I tell you, think about safety, what do you imagine? You don't imagine 100 police officers right, right outside my door. You think, or most people say, my grandmother's kitchen table, right. my kids playing in my backyard. Safe it's, neighborhoods have fewer police. Exactly. Exactly. And stronger community infrastructure. We're right. seeing some more cool Cairn things. Oh, wow. Yeah, these are huge. So, yeah, I have the suspicion that these are more recent, but there's ones back up in the woods that I think may be older. Yeah, it's interesting because it's, it's like a little bit of the spire, but also then it's this sort of like swirling pattern that leads up to the... Well, I think the rocks were here. Like yeah. you see these right. piles yeah, of rocks, shale, yeah, yeah. but then the uh, the sort of stone wall construction, and then these circles on top are added. Um, so yeah, so the criminal justice system, or I also say we say system. It's really a set of systems 
all of these local jurisdictions making their own kind of discretionary choices about how to enforce things. Because you've got to understand the prosecutor has uh, basically unreviewable limitless power to decide whether to charge you or not. So they don't have to charge even a murder. There's no requirement to charge anything. So they're deciding how to direct their resources. Now, if they don't charge a murder for some reason, you know, another, the uh, state attorney general might or a federal prosecutor might. Um, but they can decide what to charge. And then the, the, the type of charges that you're allowed to bring, it's kind of flexible. So if you're carrying, um, you know, two bags of drugs of some kind, is that for personal use or is that for sale? Personal use might be misdemeanor. Sale might be a felony. They might say, based on the circumstances, it was a sale. Was it a sale? So they'll call it possession with intent to distribute. It's going to be a much more serious charge than simple possession. So there's a lot that, can, that is happening at the local level with discretion, and not just the elected district attorney, but all of the line prosecutors who work for them. Mm. It's really kind of, we have this new wave that I've worked hard to create of uh, uh, forward-thinking district attorneys, but that doesn't, you know, there might be a thousand DAs in the Chicago office, for example. It's a lot of personnel with a lot of habits, a lot of assumptions, a lot of ways that they are sure they're sort of yeah, I've, I've been hearing about some of these DAs and actually um, from friends who, who, are, who are public defenders, um, they say what a radical thing it was for, for, for Chissa Bowden in, in, in um, the Bay Area to uh, go from being a public defender yep. to the DA's office because the um, worldview um, can be seen as so radically different to be on that prosecutorial side. Yeah. Um, so and Chisa Boudin is interesting, too, because his mother, uh, Kathy Boudin, was incarcerated for like 20 years and his father's still in prison. They were in the weathermen. So that's interesting back to what you were saying before about involving people who are directly affected to like yes. get into these positions because if what you're saying, you know, at the local level there's so much discretion, then your own upbringing, the sort of the, the yes. ecosystem you grew up in is going to inform so much, right? Like the soil, you were, like you were saying before about the trees and what side of the mountain they grow on, right? Yes. The soil is going to dictate what grows there. Yes, and... On top of all of that is the fact that um, these offices have been stepping stones to higher political office, and often people will campaign for state legislature, mayor, senate, any of these positions saying, I was tough, I brought safety. I mean, that was the line for years. Now, um, what we're seeing and really happy about as, as a result of a lot of hard work is um, a sense of different a different standard for, for what people are going to expect and want to see in their representative. So you might have seen that Kamala Harris, you know, um, followed the perfect path, particularly for a black woman, to achieve higher office by being a prosecutor. And, uh, but she's been dinged for it because she was a prosecutor in the 90s and the early aughts and sent a lot of people to prison and jail. She wasn't brutal and ruthless the way some of the other folks have been. I think she has a reformer, uh, some of a reformer orientation, but is that like a little adjustment or like smash it down? And people now are looking for some smashing. So the, the, this notion of, of starting to, you know, smash it down feels like a very different shift. And, and you're actually the person who introduced me to this concept of that, that movements have seasons, right? Yeah. And you sort of 
change the, the literally the weather around a topic. From your perspective, like where, what, one, I'd love to hear you explain that idea and then, you know, sort of what season are we in right now mm-hmm. for this movement? So Seasons, uh, which I've been trained in by Carlos Saavedra and Paul Engler of the Aini Institute, A-Y-N-I, Aini Institute. The Seasons concept uh, says that on the individual, organizational, and movement level, we have seasons. And they happen at different lengths. So for people, a person, according to Carlos, ideas we're chewing on, you know, um, He thinks a season for an individual lasts maybe a year or a year and a half. Uh, Winter, spring, summer, fall, and I'll get into what they mean in a second. Organization's a bit longer and movement's a bit longer. And the seasons aren't guaranteed to be of equal length. You could have a really long, bad winter, for example. So what what do they represent? So the winter is a kind of cold, it's kind of like East Coast seasons, right? (laughs) So... The winter is a sort of a cold, quiet, reflective time. You can't really build things. You can't grow anything, but you can plan and you can recover. You can rest as maybe are like, you know, to the extent people had ancestors in ancient Europe in the ice age, you basically try to sleep the whole winter, um, rest most of the time and then you're very active in summer. So winter is cold and quiet, and we'll come back to it. Spring, starting to see some buds, new activity. Um, it can be a hungry time, though, because your winter stores have, have run out and you haven't yet hit a real summer. Um, then summer, it's hot, it's flourishing, there's abundance, uh, a lot of activity. And then the fall is starting to cool off, but you uh, hopefully get some kind of harvest and you store up for the winter, figure out you know, how you're going to last through the next winter. So on a movement level, winter would be, no one's talking about my issue, can't get any traction. You know, I think like uh, immigration is in a winter, for example. Hmm. Because even though we have these moments like the border uh, crisis when people all were paying attention to kids uh, uh, incarcerated at the border, that was a short, that was like a hot day in January, you know, <laughs> unseasonably warm. But then it goes back to feeling like you can't catch any traction, you can't get anything done. And it's just politically impossible. Um, spring, there's a lot of new organizations, new things happening. Maybe, maybe. And we were in a kind of a debate several months ago of like, where are we in, in criminal justice? There's a lot of good prosecutor stuff happening. Is that kind of like a mild summer? Are we still in spring? Did we pass? Are we now in fall? Like, where are we? And then George Floyd happened, and we're like, oh, this is summer. This is what we're talking about. And where the heat is the public attention. And there's people on the move. Your movement is growing. People are signing up. People are learning, reading about it, talking about it, making podcasts about it. Um... That summertime. And what summer does is, you know, again, like sets up the conditions for a good harvest. If you want to pass something big, like Civil Rights Act, for example, in the 60s, the bus boycotts and all of that activity set the conditions where that felt kind of essential. Like the p- political bodies have to give in some Perhaps kind of even way. inevitable. 
Well, something has to give when the people are in the streets um, for a really long time. Uh, I mean, you could just try to repress it or you could give, there's a nice frog, or you could give, you could give in. But what are the politicians gonna give in on is also important. Do you want a bridge renamed after John Lewis or do you want the Voting Rights Act reinstated? Obviously we'd like to have both, but there's a certain kind of where is the energy of the moment gonna be directed. Um, so the thing about the seasons is that one, and there's a lot of interesting things about this model, but one is to recognize the extent to which people are normally living their lives. Like, wouldn't it be better if we were always in summer? Can we keep the attention and heat? We just want to stay in this moment where people care about our issue or in your own life. I just want to be flourishing in this energy. But staying in summer too long, you just get cooked. You know, it's hot, you get dried out, you run out of ideas, um, you overuse the land. You need to restore. Uh, you need to go through some stages to be able to have a series of bountiful summers, which on the movement level, as you can imagine, like winter, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring, summer, fall, or actually from summer to summer, good summer through the seasons, next summer, next summer. If you want to achieve a big goal, like the abolition of prison, it's not going to happen in one year, movement year, so to speak. Not one calendar year, obviously, but like winter, spring, summer, one cycle will not get you to abolition. But maybe you could plot a course and say in five jumps, we could get there, or three jumps. If this summer we get to here and establish these principles and have this many people paying attention and change these laws, then next summer we could get to here and so on. And I found that really helpful because normally it's just like, from now to the future, let's hope that public attention always stays on our issues so we could just fight and fight and fight and get there. And this seasonal model, it gives you a sort of a rhythm and a sense that you'll achieve a bunch then you need to like have your fall, have your harvest, go back to your winter, replenish, retrain, rest, fix the tears in your organizations, like get yourself ready and think, okay, what's the next thing we're going to go for? But it's very rare that people are in movements are thinking like that. Yeah. Like, okay, great. Looking forward to our winter because our next summer, I think people worry the next year will just never come or the winter will last for 50 years. We have to just We have hold to on. just eat everything right now in the middle of summer or else. And it makes me think of, you know, I've planted probably 20 fruit trees uh, on, on our property. And it's a similar thing. It's a multi-year thing. And, um, you know, it, it's also the pruning that you have to do. There's some growth that you need to just let go of. Um, and it, but the stakes get higher every year. Like that particular pear tree, and now I'm three years in, if some little vole comes and tears all the bark off that, I'm going to be extra mad. You know, like <laughs> it's, it's the stakes get higher the more and more that gets invested. Um, but I think that's part of But you uh, also wisdom. see it as this continuous process instead of, I need my tree to go from zero to producing a ton of fruit in this one year. And if it doesn't, I'm done with that tree. Right. So you think of people uh, more and understandably, like the, the passing of the civil rights movement moment. We, it was great in the 60s and the 70s, got depressing, and then Reagan, oh my God. Um, I'm not saying to celebrate that, but it's, it's like people feel every time like, I guess that's it. And then the energy comes back, oh God, another chance. Instead of saying, okay, if there's important unaddressed material needs, it's, we're going to see that energy again. Right. So for example... I know a group working on Me Too stuff, which isn't the focus of public attention right now. And it could be hard to work when people are paying attention. But if they get everything ready 
for the next movement moment on Me Too, which is going to come because it's an unaddressed important need around gender-based violence and power and patriarchy, that didn't go away. It's going to come back. So know that you will get your public attention moment and prepare for it, even though along the way it's kind of disappointing that people aren't caring. It's just a much longer horizon, too. Yeah. It makes yeah. me think of, I think it's Ovid or one of those old old, old uh, Roman fellows who, who there was a saying, I'm probably getting it wrong and it's a patriarchal formulation, but it's uh, it's a good society in which uh, old men plant trees in which they will never feel the shade. Mm. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. that, that sense of long-term investment. Or I remember our, our chaplain in my high school telling us once that there's a church in England or something where they built the church and planted a grove of trees that in 500 years would be ready to fix the roof when it needed huh. fixing, wow. yeah. replacing. That's a long view. That's a long view. I mean, that's, you know, of course, uh, religions perhaps have the confidence to have that kind of length of perspective as to how long they're going to be around. Or the faith. <laughs> <laughs> so on the personal level, the seasons are important too because people, you know, Carlos will say, respect your winters. Don't fight it. People are like, oh God, my energy is down. You know, I just don't have the, you know, they're, they're feeling like disappointed and depressed that they don't have the ability to um, produce, 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 produce. They don't have the ability to produce. And people then think like, oh, you know, it's just really bad. It's just really hard. They want to fight that feeling um, and maybe be ashamed of it or in an organization feel like I'm supposed to be directing this organization, but I'm in this personal winter and my movement is in summer, but we don't have the, if you have the language for it, you can say, oh, this is what's going on. I'm in winter. You're in summer. So here's how I'm going to engage and be helpful, even though I can't be like manic. So it right gives now. you permission to lie fallow. Yes, and, and recognize that, I mean, perhaps one could say capitalism pushes us to produce, produce, be in summer all the time, mm -hmm. which is totally exhausting right. and unsustainable, instead of to kind of strategically on the movement level to say, let's get ready for a summer moment. I think it's going to come. So what will we need to be ready? What will we wish? Because in summer, you can't build anything. You got what you got. But you could anticipate, well, if we're going to have a summer movement, I will wish that we had done 50 more trainings of this kind. So let's do those and then be ready. But it sounds like that also requires an awareness of others around you. You can't just be the one human lifespan and assume that like, that's where the goal is going to get accomplished. And that, that interdependence then um, yes. feels super, super important. Well, the way Carlos puts it is sometimes, you know, you have a person who's a great leader. They, they, they're really passionate about an issue. They really want to help. And they, um, they sort of work on their own individual level, on something that, that is important they care about. Um, and run around and go to meetings and try to make a change. At some point, the individual may learn or decide, you know, I can't do this by myself. I need an organization. I need to team up with others to do this. So you form your group or maybe form a, a legal organization and work away. And then at some point you say, you know, the issue is actually still bigger than what we can handle. We need a movement. We need to be working in ecology with other groups like ours, other groups that are different, because the structural change needed is bigger than what we could accomplish as an individual or as an, as an organization. And uh, what is interesting about criminal justice is I've observed, it's probably true in other movements too, 
there's a recognition that uh, a movement is necessary to achieve the change we want to see, but a lot of people are moving with individual or organizational logic. Mm. So defending their own turf or their organization's turf. So not the superorganism. Exactly. Uh, just to go back for a sec to the um, the seasonality piece. Yeah. You know, for for this movement that you're involved in and related issues, well, two part question. Like, as the fall comes, as yep. you look, t- we're obviously in the summer of it. As you look towards the fall, what is the harvest? What is the specific legislation you're seeking? And then, what is the sort of that that longer five, ten year harvest? Well, I think there's not just one harvest, particularly because this issue, as we described, lives so much at the local level. There's not a federal bill explicitly on criminal justice that's your, like, home run thing. So the harvest looks different in different places. Um, In one county, it might look like... uh, the county resolving to tear down a jail, what, like they're doing in Los Angeles. They're going to, they're examining whether they can decommission Men's Central Jail within the next year. Wow. Now, there are many jails in LA, but that's the biggest one and the baddest uh, in the sense of it's just violence and really bad place to be. Uh, unsanitary, you know, kind of falling apart and horrible. It's been acknowledged for a while, Men's Central is horrible, but this sort of liberal response is to say, that jail is horrible, let's close it and build a much nicer jail where people can have educational classes and see their families and all this stuff, which starts to beg the question of why are we doing all that in jail? Like, right. <laughs> people need those things, but does it have to be in a locked facility? Maybe in extreme cases, um, but there's kind of few of those. So uh, the harvest is, um, they're harvesting things all the time in L.A. right now. It's kind of an amazing, Bears. bountiful moment. Bears. Is there a bear? That's a mama. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. Logan. <gasps> they're little babies. Baby two, bears. Two cubs, mama and three, two Three, I think. That's Logan, mama, you want to stay away from that bear? I think there's three yeah. cubs. Don't wow. mess with the mama bear. Okay, let's, um, we're curving down to the right, and okay. we can just move it along. Yep. Oh, wow. Logan! Let's not have my dog eaten by a bear. Logan! Yep. Oh, three, three cubs. Yeah. Logan, come! Jeez. No, Logan! Oh, he's God. going after him. Okay, well, he's quick. I think he'll hold his distance and not he's actually get yeah, eaten. Yeah, he's coming back. Coming. <laughs> wow. And, and, and they were, luckily, they were, the cubs were on the other side of yeah, her. Yeah, they were all so. running off. Wow. That's pretty cool. Those are awesome. So um, so the harvest looks different in different places. It might also be, um, you know, in L.A. right now, we've been planning for years, for four years, to challenge the incumbent who went completely without a challenger in 2016. L.A. County has 10 million people and 86 cities, I think. 10 million people twice the size of Louisiana and, and, you know, larger than many states, vast budget. It's a huge jurisdiction. Uh, It would be a very major state in its own right. And so it's kind of a big deal to do anything in L.A. County because it's one in 33 Americans lives there. That's another way to think about it. That's where I grew up. Yeah. Um, 
cool spot. So Lacey went unchallenged in 2016. And Lacey is what The role? incumbent district attorney. District Sorry. attorney, okay. Got Overseeing it. county criminal justice system from the perspective of charging, uh, deciding who to charge. So then, um, but to the movement moment point in Los Angeles, good timing. You know, the, the harvest, it looks like, could be that George Gascon, who was the kind of pioneering reform prosecutor in San Francisco, but is from L.A., moved back home for family reasons, uh, was recruited by community organizers to run, may win this year. And if he wins, it will be because of the larger movement moment that we're in. The infrastructure was in place. He's a great candidate. But to take out a sitting incumbent who happens to be a black woman as well is a huge task. And um, But Black Lives Matter Los Angeles has really been calling attention to D.A. Lacey's uh, bad policies. And lots of people are now paying attention to what Black Lives Matter Los Angeles says. So it's like a good confluence. If the year were, if all of this were happening in 2018, it would have died down by the time she was up for election. It would be much harder to unseat her. Huh. Elections matter a lot. I'd also say that um, money streams matter a lot. So... When the federal government allocates money to the states for their safety budgets, where does that money go? Where does Victim of Crime Act money go? Does it all go to the police? Or does it go to other things? And that's starting to uh, be questioned right now. Under the CARES Act, there was a portion of that act that sent millions of dollars to the states for public safety. And um, in Illinois, Advocates convinced the government to commit to allocating all of their CARES Act money to community-based organizations mm. addressing violence and, and safety in their communities instead of to police. Imagine that as like a philanthropic gift. That's a huge deal for those organizations to get this influx of cash. Um, so, yes, elections matter a lot. And also, you know, the more... P- uh, people at, at levels of government and the public are understanding that the way to address safety concerns isn't just through more prison, jails, and police. The more a lot of decisions can shift around allocation of resources that, that sort of change the results. Awesome. Cool. It's so beautiful here. It really is. It's pretty good. Good bird action. And I'm really proud, you know, they say, of course, that uh, frogs... There's certain species that are really sensitive to the environment being disrupted, frogs among them. So the fact that we have so many frogs makes me feel like we're doing a good job, meaning we're not slathering pesticides all over the place. The children have caught an exponential number of frogs. They're everywhere. Frogs, lizards, uh, lightning bugs, howling dogs in the background. Bears. I, I mean, we had a good distance from that bear, but anytime you see a cub, it's just the sense of like... Yeah. Oh, no. Um, One of the things that that we like to ask people um, is to to take us far afield, right? Um, What is something that you do or have in your life that you're either passionate about, a hobby, a um, interest or obsession, recent Wikipedia death spiral, just something that... um, you find really interesting that you could talk to us about that's not criminal justice that's not criminal I mean, justice i do have this problem of always working in the sense that my mind is devoted very deeply to this topic so everything around me i'm relating to it all the time but something i was getting into when uh pre-minneapolis but once we we're in covid was scenario planning trying to understand that better um 
because I thought, you know, what is the world going to look like in a year? And are we thinking properly about it? I and mean, we're mostly, we're like, oh yeah, the budgets are going to be in trouble, this or that, but it wasn't clear thinking. So I read up a bit about it, and it's something that companies do all the time, which is to take the two biggest uncertainties that are going to have the most impact on your situation, um, which could require a lot of thinking to discern what those are, and you map them out at X and Y axis. So all the way from definitely not going to happen to definitely all the way going to happen. Uh, so you could take COVID deaths, for example, if you said that's really important to what we're trying to work on. Very few deaths to a lot of deaths. And the other axis would be the other uncertainty. Trump wins, Biden wins, something like that. And then in the four quadrants, you say low deaths, Trump wins, low deaths, Trump loses, high deaths, Trump w- uh, Biden wins, you know, whatever. Uh, and then you name them. You're like, what is the reality where these these different things are true? And when you when you can focus on it like that, you're like, okay, now I'm in a world where Biden is president, but COVID is raging. Like, how do we even think about that kind of world? How do we need? Well, now I'm in a world where Trump is president and COVID is raging or, you know, whatever your uncertainties are. Um, And I like that, again, for the same reason I was telling you before, to get away from the mush and into some like specific stances and to see, okay. We could kind of deal with one, two, and three, but four would be just catastrophic. Can we orient ourselves a little bit better to the possibilities of four? It's not meant to predict which world you're going to be in, but more to say, are we comfortable being zero prepared for that four scenario, which is just as likely as the other three? Right. And which at is, least you've contemplated it. Even if yeah. you haven't gone and procured a whole bunch of whatever, you've contemplated it. Um, and if it doesn't go there, then you can maybe appreciate where you are more and have deeper gratitude. <laughs> so apparently Shell did this in the 50s and 60s, and they were better prepared for the oil shock mm. in the 70s because they mm. thought about it. Mm. Yeah, um, something valuable about just like even naming the possibility. Yeah. Right? Um, and then you can start to think about all of those futures. And I like that concept of actually naming the points of intersection, too. I still am interested in this. Now we're sort of past the real height of the Minneapolis moment, um, though it's still around, to think, like uh, New Orleans after Katrina, that was catastrophic, but literally and figuratively washed a lot of things away, so now you could build other things instead. You you can't stick with your old habits because that stuff just literally isn't there anymore. Um, So that's the sort of transformative moment potential is when things are going to be... Hi, this is my dog. Hello, Logan. Hello, Logan. You're breathing very hard. <laughs> um, so that's one thing that I've been thinking about. Um, what, um, these days, what are your practices? What are the things that are keeping you grounded, that are keeping you anchored? <laughs> you presume that I'm anchored and grounded. Um, attempting. attempting. <laughs> what shore are you heading towards? <laughs> uh, well, being up here in upstate New York is... Definitely more grounding than being in the city. Logan, come here. Stop bothering the microphone. Um, really, really like going to our local swimming hole and diving in. That's very refreshing. Um, walking around, just around the house outside, like barefoot on our terrace and looking at the sunlight and the trees. That's very restorative. I don't, I'm not one of those elevated people that has like a good kind of daily yoga regimen, regimen or... Uh, meditation or anything like that. I recognize that those are good things for people to do. It just has never been my style. Um, Being barefoot on the terrace, looking at the sunlight, sounds like a meditation to me. Yeah, there's little moments, like two seconds, like, yeah. that's really 
It's really excellent the way the light is falling through the trees um, and appreciating all these rock formations around here and water flowing past rock. That's restorative. Thanks so much. This was fun. Great. This was a good hike. I really appreciate yeah. you taking the time. And yeah. we saw toads and we saw cairns and bears oh, and deers. deer. We saw and I all yelled at my dog who might get eaten by a bear. <laughs> didn't. Didn't get eaten by a bear. Good job, Logan. Good job, Logan. An update. The reformer, George Gascon, won his race for L.A. County District Attorney. Last month, Chloe wrote about the significance of that victory in an op-ed for the Washington Post titled, Money Can't Buy Criminal Justice Reform, But It Can Fuel a Movement. You can find a link to this essay on our website, wildtalkpodcast.com. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to Wild Talk on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please do tell your friends and rate and review us on the Apple Podcast Store. It really makes a difference to help people find the show. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you out there.